Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ahoy, ahoy. Welcome, friends. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to Patented. It's lovely to have your company. I am your host, Dallas Campbell. This is the place where we talk about the origins of things, the origins of inventions, why things happened the way they happened, and the stories behind them. Today, we are going back to space. We are visiting one of my favourite subjects. It's not even that space is my favourite subject. It's a space as a collective is a wonderful canvas for history in which we can explore all kinds of inventions and innovations and the solving of difficult problems set against this backdrop of adventure and excitement. It's a great story and it's a wonderful history. Today we're going to be talking about space food in particular, which always seems a bit like an addendum. It's a bit of an added on. Like, is space food important? Where's the science in that? Lots of science in that, lots of innovation, lots of known unknowns and unknown unknowns, as you can imagine. In fact, there's a great essay, which I recommend you read, by Carl Sagan called The Gift of Apollo. And he's talking about President Kennedy's famous 1961 Rice Stadium speech. You know the one. We choose to go to the moon in this decade. And Sagan says, you know, paraphrasing the president, they would use rockets not yet designed and alloys not yet conceived, navigation and docking systems not yet devised in order to send a man to an unknown world. A world not yet explored, not even in a preliminary way, not even by robots. And we would bring him safely back, and we would do it before the decade was over. This confident pronouncement was made before any American had even achieved Earth orbit. And that was the kind of spirit of Apollo that he's talking about, this idea of grappling unknowns, and food was one of those unknowns. In the early days, of course, astronauts would only be in space for a matter of hours, a matter of days. So food wasn't that important as long as it kept them alive. But how would food behave in weightlessness, for example? How would it taste? How would it keep people healthy? But as we explored space more and spent more time up there, and nowadays we're up on the International Space Station for six months and longer, food has another important component, the psychological component. Food, of course, keeps our morale going. It keeps us psychologically healthy. Anyone who's been on a long camping trip or an expedition knows the importance of a good meal. And that is what scientists are grappling with as much as anything else. My guest today to talk about all of these things could not be better. It's Vicky Claris. 
who worked as part of NASA's space food team for 34 years. And she was the manager of the Space Shuttle Food Program for a while. And then she worked on the International Space Station food system. So nobody knows this subject better, how it all works. If you've got questions about what do they eat up in space, this is the show for you. She is going to take us on a potted history, pun intended, or maybe that should be a freeze-dried history, of the evolution of food for spaceflight, from those very early flights that I mentioned, right up to thinking about how we're going to survive on Mars. Hey, welcome to the show, Vicky. Hey, listen, you were just telling me about your Rice Stadium, which, when we talk about space history, Rice University, sorry, has a very important place in space history. Oh, well, Rice Stadium yeah. does too, because that's where Kennedy gave his address. And they just had a big event there to celebrate the 60th anniversary of that at the stadium. Mm-hmm. We choose to go to the moon. In this decade... And do the other things. For the longest time, I could never work out what the other things were because I'd never read the whole speech. He said, we'll, we just go and do the other things, not because it's easy, because, because it's hard. I'm like, what other things? What are you talking about? It always bothered me as a child, that yeah. particular one. I've always been impressed that he was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, we don't typically get leaders like that. I mean, he was very eloquent. You know, he was eloquent and he had, he did, he had that kind of magnetic quality. Mm-hmm. He had that star quality Charisma. that we were just drawn to. <laughs> Charisma. That's the word. Well, listen, NASA legends on the show today. Thank you very much for, <laughs> for joining us. You were just telling, the reason I mentioned Rice University was because you were just telling me you, you were just giving a talk about mm-hmm. food security and which is obviously mm-hmm. very topical at the moment. We have food security issues and we've got a war going on with Ukraine at the moment. And they asked you to give a talk about space food security. That's that's niche. Well, actually, it wasn't so much about space food security as I took a little bit. I think I was kind of designed to be somewhat of the entertainment portion of the, <laughs> right. yeah, the, jokes. the, the, pre- <laughs> the, the presentation. I said, so I'm going to take a little bit different slant on it. I'm going to say there's another kind of food security. So food provides nutrition, and that's important, obviously, but the psychological aspect of food and how important that is to people's mental well-being. And so that's where I brought in the space flight and how much food contributes to crew morale, especially on long-duration missions. So Yeah, I think that is the key interesting thing when we talk about the history of space food and we'll kind of get onto the psychological. Anyone who's been on a camping trip, you know, if you go on a camping trip for a weekend or something, you can get by on basic rations. Mm -hmm. You know, it might not be fun, but you can do it. It's fine. If you're on a six month long mission, you know, wherever you need, as we know, you need food for not just the corporeal, but for the mind, for the mm-hmm. emotional sense, for the psychology, because it's really important. I started working at NASA very early in the shuttle program. Mm. I think only 16 of the 135 flights had launched before I came to work there as a contractor. And then after four years, I actually became a civil servant and started managing the shuttle food system. And for shuttle, very few of the crew members really cared that much about food. They considered it a camping trip. And then I can remember when we transitioned 
and we were going to build the International Space Station, we sent crew members to stay on Mir, the Russian space station mm. that was still up at the time. And so I went and talked to some of those crew members who were going to be on those first missions. And I can remember one in particular said, I'm too busy learning Russian <laughs> and learning about Mir. I don't have time to think about food. Just go look at my shuttle menu when I flew on shuttle. Mm. It'll be fine. Mm. And we did that. We did as the person asked. But then I can remember after the flight, some of the debriefs afterwards from that crew member and others who said, four and a half months on Mir, I should have paid more attention to what food I brought with me because it became a lot more important. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, one of the take home lessons of the shuttle Mir period was how bad morale got. And not just that, but they had a lot of issues. I mean, they yes. had the progress that hit the state, hit the them, fire hit and, and the fire yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. all kinds of bad stuff went on. Bad days in space. Well, if you have a bad day on Earth, the thing that cures your bad day is nice food. <laughs> good, <laughs> it, good it can meal. help, yeah. <laughs> Dear listeners, by the way, if you are interested in, in the shuttle Mir story, a, a book called Dragonfly is the mm -hmm. book to read. Brian Burroughs' Dragonfly is a, is a very hair-raising account. Anyway, let's talk about food. So actually, one of the things that, you know, when Kennedy made that speech at, at, in Rice Stadium in 1961, you know, he talked about, we're going to build a rocket made out of metals that never been made before and da 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 da, da. And one of the great unknowns about Apollo, and this, you know, when he made that speech, I think we'd only been in space about 45 minutes. I think Alan Shepard had just done his little hop and that was it. Was food, we had no idea about what this new breed of explorers, astronauts were going to eat in space. So can you take us right back to the beginning? Like pre-Alan Shepard, we're thinking about sending humans into space. I don't know, maybe Gagarin had gone up already. Did the Mercury, what did the, the Mercury astronauts, did they even eat? Because they were only up for a, a couple of hours. They did. I mean, there was a concern among physiologists, though, that you would not be able to properly swallow in microgravity. Mm. Nobody knew how all that would work. And so I can remember, of course, the first foods they sent up were things like applesauce and very... Baby food. <laughs> yeah, pureed. That carried over for a while into the space program where they were eating a lot of pureed tube foods that they just squeezed into their mouths. Mm. One of my favourite space food stories, and I'll get this wrong, so please correct me. <laughs> it was the Gemini mission, so the mission pre-Apollo after Project Mercury. I think it was Gus Grisham and John Young, two American, famous American astronauts, Gemini 3, John Young had smuggled up sandwiches. a corned beef sandwich. Two of them, it was like actually. Two, oh, was there two? Okay. So t you tell the story. You tell the story because it's a good one. Well, the way I heard the story was that there were two because he had had them in the pockets of his flight suit. One was for him and one for was for his buddy, right? NASA was pretty upset <laughs> when they heard about that. <laughs> but just from a physicist's point of view or an engineering point of view, uh, the reason that NASA got upset about John Young and Gus Grisham's sandwich was presumably that crumbs are not great on spaceships. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that was the initial concern. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm probably sure maybe a food safety concern as well. You know, they wouldn't want to get him a foodborne illness. I mean, who knows how long <laughs> that sandwich was in his pocket, you know. Well, <laughs> it was it was Wolfie's Diner in Cocoa Beach was the restaurant <laughs> yeah, he bought it. I, yeah. I, I believe it was a corned beef and mustard sandwich. And the sandwich, it was, or one of the sandwiches was preserved in a piece of plastic and it's in the Gus Grissom Museum in Indiana. Ah, now that I didn't know. So if you find yourself in Indiana, pop into the Gus Grisham Museum. Yes, okay. <laughs> I, I will have to check that out. But Antiques Roadshow did a segment about the sandwich oh, and the they? restaurant. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, how funny. So anyway, but we've learned lots. As we've been going into space what, for sort of 60 years or so. We've learned a lot about food. For you as someone working at NASA, did that sort of story of how you know, to make food better, more palatable, more resilient to both the conditions and humans. How did that, because you were there, for, you were at NASA for a good 30 years, I think. How did that sort of develop over time? Well, I think the biggest thing was the whole segue into long duration spaceflight and how yeah. much more important food became. And it was like an educational process First, we had to educate the astronauts, and they kind of educated themselves because those first ones that came back from Mir and realized that they felt the food was more important, Mm. that word kind of got around the astronaut office. You know, if you're up there for a long time, you need to think about, (laughs) because at that time, we were still flying shuttles, so there were short-duration missions and long-duration missions going on at the same time. Then we had to educate management Because all along, management had been, they had seen that food was not that important to the crew members. And so it had a low priority for them. And so it became an educational process of them having to realize food was more important on long duration missions. You had to be sure that the crew members got their food on time. They had plenty of it. So that was part of it. And on our side, on the production side, we quickly realized that we, because of long duration, we were going to have to really expand our menu. We needed Mm. a lot more variety to support a four or six month stay in space than we did for a two week shuttle flight. So we had to develop a lot of new foods. And who do you work with? Okay, so let's assume I'm an American astronaut and and I know shuttle doesn't exist anymore. How does it work? Do you work with chefs? Is there like one company that makes the food? Is it all on site? Is it a bit like when they make airline food? Paint me a picture of how the food at NASA is prepared. Okay, the food lab is located at the Johnson Space Center. And it's a small team of people Mm -hmm. that work on space food. It's food scientists, technicians, dietitians. It's not a very large team. But like you look at the space station menu as it exists today, there's approximately the standard menu, which is the core food that NASA keeps in inventory all the time to send into space. There's about 200 roughly different foods and beverages. And that's all pre-prepared stuff, isn't it? Because there's no kitchen in space, as it were. There's no, like, cooker or naked... I mean, there's heaters, but... All they can really do is add water and heat food on... Warm it up on orbit. Yeah. So of those 200 foods, about 50% are commercial off-the-shelf products that are repackaged for spaceflight. So... All of the powdered beverages that are sent to orbit are commercial off-the-shelf 
And yes, NASA still flies Tang. <laughs> Tang is still part of the. <laughs> well, I was going <laughs> to listen. If you don't understand, the Tang was the famous drink that they drank on the Apollo missions, and it was a, I don't know. Does, does and, anyone drink Tang outside of NASA? I don't know well, if it even exists. Tang did. I mean, Tang. for a long time, Tang advertised the fact that NASA. Yeah, of course, you know, that was did. part of their advertising <laughs> yeah. campaign. Yeah. The other commercial products that we use, a lot of those are like cookies, crackers, candy, nuts. Those are all things that are bought commercially and repackaged. But on the other side of the coin, the freeze-dried items and the thermostabilized items that are in pouches, they're like Mm -hmm. canned products, but they're in pouches instead of cans. Those are all pretty much custom made. So there's, am I right in thinking it's divided between core food? So a load of food gets sent up that everyone shares, but then there's also bonus food that okay. each, each particular astronaut might. So preference, yeah. Preference, yeah. Yeah, there's kind of a interesting story that goes with that, if I have time to tell it. <laughs> yeah, tell us. So I think I mentioned earlier that on shuttle, it was a 100% personal preference menu. So they would tell us exactly what they wanted for each meal, and we would pack it that way. And we tried to do that when we went into the space station era, but it was an abysmal failure. Because for a crew member who's staying on orbit for six months, there's approximately 70 containers of food that you've got to get there at a certain time. On shuttle, the food and the crew member were on the same vehicle, so no issue. With Space Station, you're launching the food on a cargo flight that's separate from the crew member. So what would happen is the timing of the cargo flights never correlated 100%. So crew members would come back from early station flights and complain, you promised me I was going to get the food that I asked for. And part of the time I was up there, I had to eat Joe Blow's food, and Joe Blow had terrible taste in food. (laughs) So it became this big psychological issue. And when the European, when the ESA cargo vehicle, ATV, was going to launch for the first time, NASA wanted to load it up with food and clothing. They did not want to put one-off science equipment on it or anything like that because they weren't. 100% 100% confident it was going to make it. And so there was going to be a ton of food on board. And the flight had already slipped. That ATV flight had slipped numerous times. So we knew we had no clue who was going to be on board when that ATV got to station. Mm. So we worked in the lab with our dietitian and created a standard menu with as much variety as possible. And so we took that to the astronaut office and said, look, this is what we want to put on ATV because we don't know who's going to be there. And they looked at that and cogitated on it for a while. And then, much to my surprise, came back to me and said, not only do we want you to use this on ATV, we want you to use this standard menu from now on. Because they, it, it totally makes sense. Because the last thing you want is having to cater for fussy eaters all the time. But the caveat was each crew member will get a smaller number of preference containers. Got it. And so the smaller number is much easier, you know. So each crew member on a six-month stay right now gets, I think it's around 20, something like that. 
preference containers that'll have their name on it. And so that number is much more manageable to get there at a certain time rather than 70. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it's got really chefy as well. I've actually got some ESA. This is some International Space Station food from the ISS. Mm -hmm. And I'm holding it up to the camera. And this is some of Tim Peake, who's a British astronaut. This is some of his. He's got some sausage sizzle there. It's actually, the bottom is made out of plastic and it's got a a sort of aluminium Mm -hmm. top with a ring pull. And it's support of chef Heston Blumenthal, who you may have heard of. Very famous English chef. I read somewhere that the chef Heston Blumenthal, Heston and Tim worked together and, and Heston said, well, what do you like most about eating on earth? And Tim talked to, he liked about, he liked camping and that kind of stuff. And bacon sandwich was the thing that Tim wanted when he first arrived at the station. A big hoo-ha about that. Again, Heston had to design a kind of bread that wouldn't crumb and a, it had to be in a can. I think they spent something like $2 million <laughs> kind of researching the bacon. It was like the most ever expensive made, yeah. bacon sandwich ever created, <laughs> ever made. I don't know if that's nonsense. Perhaps it is. But how much thought in terms of, oh, it's got to be safe and bacteria free and it's got to be, I mean, is it that laborious a process designing a meal for space or is it pretty much any old food can go up and you don't have to worry too much about it? So the problem is whether you're a chef or you cook at home, (laughs) when you prepare stuff here on Earth, you're typically not going for extended shelf life, right? The chef prepares something, he makes it look beautiful. So chefs are typically trained to make something, make it taste wonderful, look beautiful, and have you eat it right then and there, right? Mm. And so the big drawback to space food right now it's all pretty much got to be shelf-stable. We have no dedicated refrigerators and freezers for food on orbit. Now, they do have a small chiller where they can chill beverages, but the thing is, there's not really even a capability to get frozen food to orbit. These cargo vehicles aren't set up with freezers or anything like that. So what happens when you've got a recipe or a formulation of a product, then you've got to convert it into a shelf-stable form. So that means you either have to put it through a retort, canned products or pouch products, they go into a retort, and you put the food in a container, you seal the container, you put it in the retort, and the retort uses a combination of heat and pressure to kill all the bacteria inside the product. So the problem is, during that process, you're changing the color, the flavor, the texture. It's not going to be exactly the same. (laughs) And so when you go, if your goal is to take a recipe that you have and create a shelf-stable version of it, you're probably going to have to go through multiple iterations to get it right. Mm. Chances of it coming out the way you want it on the first try are slim. There is definitely an art to formulating canned foods. I mean, that's why food scientists work for companies and because product development is an art. (laughs) And presumably that food science, you know, you get your food critics come back from space saying, oh, it just didn't taste good. There's some astronauts, you know, they get very funny about things. I remember a few years ago, Samantha Cristoforetti went on her first, she's up there at the moment, her first flight, She's Italian. She's got to have good coffee. And one of the great problems about space, and it would be for me, one of the great problems about space flight is no proper coffee. (laughs) So I can't remember which astronaut designed a special 
drinking vessel that would work in microgravity. And it looks a bit like one of those, you pour washing liquid in ball things yep. and you put yep. it in your washing machine. It's a really weird thing. Anyway, it worked. And now they've got a Lavazza coffee machine up there, I think. And and she can have her proper espresso every morning, which I think is very civilized. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how well that espresso machine is working. Last, last <laughs> I heard, it wasn't working too well. <laughs> We'll be back after this short break. All this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking, who really were the Vikings? How did they become so successful in spreading across northern Europe and beyond from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and throughout September I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The other thing I've noticed is everyone seems to eat tortilla bread. Ah, there's a story sort of, that goes wraps. with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, is that? Okay, what's that? It's the space burrito. When I first came to work at NASA as a contractor in 1985, the shuttle had what was called the fresh food tray. And so the fresh food tray existed because the crew members demanded it. There was not an initial plan for a fresh food tray. And so it was originally designed to take things like apples and citrus and stuff that would last without refrigeration. And the fresh food tray was always prepared like somewhere around 36 to 48 hours before launch. It was one of the last things that was put on the vehicle. And so we would prepare that in crew quarters. Well, when I first came to work there, they were sending up sliced bread. Just buy it from the grocery store, and that's what they were using to make sandwiches. We'd put it in Ziploc bags, send it up in the fresh food tray. Well, then we had a payload specialist from Mexico fly, Rudolfo Neri. He wanted tortillas, naturally. So we sent tortillas for his flight. And when the crew members saw how easy it was to take a tortilla roll up stuff in it. It was like having a sandwich without having to deal with two pieces of bread and all the crumbs that the bread created. Then it was like, okay, forget the bread. We want tortillas going forward. And so we started looking down at Kennedy for a tortilla factory somewhere near the launch site. Really wasn't one. Couldn't find one. Really? I thought there'd be loads of Mexican... 
Well, I mean, lots of Mexican food places, but not necessarily making manufacturing tortillas. And of course, you go to South Florida, there's going to be lots of manufacturing. But there was tons of it in the Houston area. So what we did was go out and find the cleanest facility. (laughs) Well, because what we did was take samples from a bunch of them. And the one that gave us the least yeast and the least mold that's what we started buying those tortillas because yeast and mold, that's how it's going to fail, right? We took the product from these different facilities and we selected the facility whose product had tested the best. Did they know you were doing no. this? Did they know no. that? No. Ah, so That's really interesting. Are you still using the same facility? No, we are not. And that's part okay. of the ongoing story with tortillas. So we would send up these fresh tortillas. We would buy them in Houston, put them on the NASA plane, the plane that took the crew down to the launch site. And so that would be about three days before launch. And those were the tortillas we put on board. And that worked great when the shuttle flights were shorter. But when the shuttle flights got longer, the tortillas wouldn't make it to the end of the flight. The crew was like, okay, what are you going to do about it? And so the food scientist in the lab, we said, well, we know the military makes extended shelf life bread products. And the way they do that is they package them anaerobically. So you remove all the oxygen from the product. It can't mold. So when you package it anaerobically, you extend the shelf life. But there's always a little catch, and the catch is you can't just take any old bread product and package it anaerobically because the moisture content is high enough that the anaerobic pathogens could grow. And the anaerobic pathogens, some of them are pretty nasty. Clostridium botulinum is an example. And so you got to eliminate that. And the way you do that is you put binders in the dough that bind free water and reduce the amount of free water. When you get the free water below a certain level, it's called the water activity. When you get it below a certain level, nothing can grow. So the military had extended shelf life, low water activity bread products, not tortillas though. But we knew the technology, so we formulated our own reduced water activity tortilla. And we were in the tortilla manufacturing business at Johnson Space Center for a while. We had the dough divider, the dough press, the whole bit. And so we did that for quite a while. And our tortillas that we made would last about four months. And then they developed kind of a bitter aftertaste. But four months was more than adequate for shuttle. That was fine. But when we went into space station, we knew we were going to have to have more than a four-month shelf life. So we were about to start a R&D project, figure out what's causing that bitter aftertaste, how can we make them last longer. And about that time, Taco Bell came out with a soft tortilla kit in the grocery store, and it had the tortillas in it, and it had a nine-month shelf life. And so we're like, that has got to be a low water activity tortilla. So we got samples of it, tested it. Sure enough, low water activity. So we found out who was making it for Taco Bell. It wasn't Taco Bell making it. It was somebody else. But we started buying them from that manufacturer and packaging them anaerobically ourselves. And those got a two-year shelf life. 
So we were good to go for station, right? And so for years, that's what NASA did. Bought those tortillas, packaged them. A few years ago, the military started producing the MRE, Meals Ready to Eat facility, in San Antonio that makes all the bread for the military. They started coming out with a tortilla in the military package with a two-year shelf life. And we're like, okay, we want to try that. We want to see if it's better than ours, right? So we got samples. We got everybody in the lab, sat them down, did a blind taste test, and we're not able to reach any conclusion. Well, we investigated, we found out military wasn't making them. They were buying them from the same people that we were buying them from and packaging them. And so now we just buy them from the military. We don't even have to package them anymore. That's, it's a kind of like a tortilla yeah. war. You could have just made them yours. You could, NASA should make them themselves now and sell them in the gift shop. Because, you know, you buy that oh, yeah. space ice cream that no one's ever taken. No, it has gone Oh, has it? I can remember. It I think I've never ever, people always buy it for yeah. me because they, because I'm interested yeah. in space. And then I, I always chuck well, it Well, you know, we used to it. make it, when we would do tours of the food lab for students and stuff, for kiddos, mm. young, we would do that freeze-dried ice cream, prepare it in the lab and give it out during the tours, you know. <laughs> we nice. did that. But nice. no, you know, it's not exactly like real ice cream. It's funny how that sort of caught on and that's become the symbol of space food. It's more like ice cream. It's a weird thing. It's more like hard cotton candy than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was going to ask you, we talked a little bit about beverages. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I read a thing, Buzz Aldrin, when he was on the surface of the moon, or just when they landed on the surface of the moon, they took Holy Communion. Right. And he'd smuggled on board a tiny thing. I think it was brandy, perhaps. There's certainly maritime rules in space in terms of how laws work and that kind of thing. And obviously, sailors always take bottles of brandy. I know the space station is dry. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 officially. But I know also officially. officially but I also know we were talking about Mir and I and I know that certainly mm. bottles of brandy was were, were sort of smuggled on Mir. How did that all was that was any of that ever sanctioned or was it just people shoving bottles of brandy or whatever down their spacesuit pockets? I don't think it was ever sanctioned on Mir. Because I can remember when we started working with the Russians. I was privy, I was in the room when a discussion went on, and one of our flight surgeons, I believe it was one of our flight surgeons, asked their flight surgeon about alcohol, and he was, yet, yet, it is, you know, they denied it. (laughs) I can remember when Shannon Lucid was on Mirror. She was taking a bunch of photos, Mm. right? And one of the photos she took was in the service module to show the table that they had and the rehydration station that they had. And if you look in the lower corner of that picture, you can see a stack of like three bottles of obviously (laughs) liquor stacked there, you know? And so, you know, I don't know if they didn't know it was there or they didn't care. I mean, you know. Yeah, well, I can imagine. I can imagine. I know. Well, let's go into the future now. We, we talked about the importance, obviously, of, well, if you're a short duration camping trips, 
okay, food will keep your body going, it'll keep you alive. Long duration ISS missions, six months, you need food to taste nice for psychological reasons, etc. As we go for back to the moon, for example, as we push on to Mars, what are we going to do? We can't just take our camping food with us for three-year missions. We have to learn well, to live off the land. How are we going to do that? That's a huge challenge for a Mars mm. mission. It's one of the big red flags that NASA has for a Mars mission, along with radiation and some other things that are really bad. I mean, the challenge for a first Mars mission is the fact that you're not going to have any infrastructure waiting for you. There's no, Yeah, there's no Taco Bell on Mars. And so to live off the land and grow food takes a lot of infrastructure. And so at least for that first mission you are going to be kind of limited to what you can send ahead because you're not going to be able to take it all with you. You're going to have to send it ahead and have it kind of like in the movie The Martian where a lot of stuff was waiting for them. That's probably the way it's going to work for that first Mars mission is that they'll send the supplies ahead and they'll be waiting and that'll include food. And so the challenge, of course, is the fact that you can't launch to Mars all the time. You have to wait till Earth and Mars get close together about every 18 months. And then with current propulsion technology, it's about a six-month trip. And so what that means, the whole time that I was at NASA, there was always talk about a mission to Mars. That This has been discussed forever. And so at that time, they said, well... If they pre-position the food and verify that it's there, then they launch the crew in six months to get there, and they got to stay there at least 18 months before they can think about coming home, then what that means is the food that they eat on that return six-month trip is going to be about five years old. Yeah. And so now there's talk of that, pre-positioning of the food being done by a solar-powered rocket rather than a chemical rocket, which means that's a slow boat to Mars. And so now it could be five to seven-year-old food that they're eating on the return trip. And the challenge is we can make food that's safe to eat for that length of time because you can stop the chemical, I mean, the microbiological <laughs> changes in the food but you can't stop the chemical changes. No. And so uh, over time, those products, the quality is going to degrade, the nutritional content is going to degrade. And so the challenge is how in the world are you going to you know, have food that's that old, that they're going to be willing to eat, that they can get enough nutrition from, because NASA wants the crew to be high-performing even on the return yeah. trip. It's funny because for ages now on the ISS, to a lesser extent, Mia, they were experiments have been going on growing food and you see astronauts with their little mm -hmm. lettuces growing and and that worries me it's like you can't just eat bits of lettuce for five years it always seems to be like really spindly bits of lettuce i'm like no i want to i want something more substantial than a bit of lettuce so the challenge in growing stuff in microgravity is that you're pretty much limited to pick and eat crops mm. because you can't really process food in microgravity. You can't cook it. So it's pretty much got to be stuff that's ready to yeah. eat. And so that's why all along, the minute they started growing stuff on station, 
there was always talk among the crew about what a nice psychological thing that was to have green growing stuff because everything else around you stayed the same every day. You know, they always made jokes about the fact that uh, the only thing that changed was the length of their hair, right? Because, you know, you're in the same environment day after day after day. And so they said growing, anything growing was lovely to have from a psychological perspective. That's interesting. But it's got to be pick and eat because they can't really process in microgravity. I heard a nice story. You know, you mentioned you're packing fresh food up mm-hmm. in the progress capsule or the dragon cap, whatever, you know, the supply mm-hmm. ships that we got up to the station. And I can't remember who was saying this. Somebody was saying, oh, what we do is we put all the citrus fruit right by the door. So when they open the door of the progress, they get that waft. They smell of it. Of citrus, of oranges yep. and, and what yep. have you. As a, yeah, I've heard as that As a sort of reminder yeah. of home because there's no sm- not much, yeah. no smells. It's like Christmas every time a cargo vehicle comes with fresh stuff on yeah. board. Yeah. Yeah. Vicky, listen, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. I think, you know, food technology and food science, when we talk about space history, it tends to be about engineering and rockets and rocket engines and of course. other things. But the invention of space food and the technology and the innovation that goes into space food, I just find it's always been a story that's really gripped me. Maybe it's because I was a kid and I liked to get the astronaut ice cream in the gift shop. And that and spacesuits for me have always been the, the really interesting. I've got lots of bits of spacesuit everywhere, but I keep people keep sending me bits of spacesuit. Anyway, thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing some of your stories. I've got like a load of real space food in my house. What You must have loads of this stuff in your house. I have a fair amount. Not so much the ESA stuff. I've got the, the NASA stuff. Hey, do you have any Apollo stuff knocking around? Because you can still buy that. I Occasional don't. bits come up on auction. I and... don't, but there's a ton of it left in the food lab, I can tell you that. <laughs> they, they got a lot of uh, archives. Oh, yeah. is the Hey, listen. Vicky, who do I need to bribe to? I need to get a, an Apollo food sample. Who do I need to bribe to get one of those? That's what I really want. I won't. You're looking You're looking horrified. <laughs> I won't do that. Don't worry. Listen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your stories. And you've had a, what a wonderful career you had. So interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, and it's been a great pleasure having you on. Well, thank thanks you. for having me. I appreciate it. There you go. That's it. I hope that's whetted your appetite. I hope that's made you hungry. Maybe go have a pot noodle, a dehydrated pot noodle, just while we're on the topic. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Hey, I've got my ISS bacon sandwich that Heston Blumenthal made on my desk. Maybe I should open it. Or maybe it's worth loads of money. Who knows? Maybe I'll one day I'll stick it on eBay. That'll, that'll be my pension. Yeah, tell us what you think about the show. And also, if you've got any ideas for stories we should cover, get in touch with me on Twitter. Twitter's generally the best way to get in touch with me or stop me in the street is the other best way. Next time, we're going to continue our little mini-series we've been doing about the invention of forensics, forensic science, with an episode on the birth of lie detectors. Really, really interesting. Lie detectors are, of course, that those sort of staple of kind of dodgy crime dramas from the 1980s. Did they work? Who invented them? Etc. We're going to be discussing all of those things. Join me then. I look forward to your company as ever. It's always a pleasure. And I will see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.